make sure you take the right door on your way down. There's no telling where you might end up. Can you make it through? To the night's end. I'll see you soon. <laughs>
The city skyline fairly sparkled when he went out on the veranda, then down the 38 stone steps to his cliffside overlook. He carefully stepped on the crumbling masonry of the 17th step, which he kept forgetting to replace. The ice in the tumbler of Glenfiddich rattled, and his smoke dropped ash as he went down. He reached the bench, solid and green with patina under the small dead cherry tree, and sat. His phone rang again. Sebastian Bates, Fanshawe Futures, he answered, taking a quaff. Two minutes later, the vice president of Fanshawe Futures had struck a deal that was a hundred times the early earnings of a minimum wage worker. He flicked a cigarette over the edge and watched the horizon. His phone blipped again, this time an anonymous tone, something from a horror movie from years past he had selected to signal a contact from his ex-wife. He reluctantly pulled it out of his pocket, saw it was indeed Janae. She was asking what time she should pick up Brie on Sunday, and to remind him to lock her door because of their daughter's sleepwalking. He hit a button to ignore it. He pulled out his flask and freshened his drink. The house was built at the height of the Regan era, and the optimistic architect had designed it with as much glass as possible. It was always bright, even on rainy days. And it was hell on hangovers. Sebastian groaned and rolled over, pulling the pillow to his face as he did every morning after a Glenfiddich night. But there would be no rest this morning of progeny visitation. Get up, Daddy. There's a man in the driveway, yelped Bree, jumping on his legs. The doorbell rang. Sebastian emerged from the covers, hauling the girl up, rising on knees made of more metal than bone, which ached with pain. With Bree hanging off his right hip, he walked down the hallway, up the half flight of steps into the front door. Need you to sign said the tall delivery man, holding a shoebox-sized package that seemed tiny in his hands. What is this? asked Sebastian, scribbling with his finger on the touchscreen. I just deliver, man, said the guy, shaking his head, handing over the box. Sebastian thanked him, closed the door, and walked toward the kitchen where the coffee was automatically brewing. The package was from the office of the chief medical examiner of New York City. His stomach dropped. It had layers of thick tape sealing it. Sebastian pulled out a knife from the block and started sawing away. He pried apart the packaging, pulling out a sealed letter. Dear Mr. Bates, please find enclosed the final three remaining personal effects of your uncle, Joseph Valerian Bates, DOD 9-11-2001. These effects were pulled from a cache of debris 10 cubic yards from the World Trade Center attacks, which was only recently found in official evidence collection. Based on the location and the trace mitochondrial DNA found on these items, it was determined these belonged to Joseph Valerian Bates. We apologize for any delay in returning these belongings to you, but the scope of this tragedy has meant some significant logistical challenges. We hope you may yet see some measure of solace from your loss. Signed. Dr. Barbara Glaskerman. Solace, Bates thought as his hands tore at the rest of the packaging. An interesting use of the word. Uncle Joe had been dead these last 19 years. 
Sebastian had been a mere teenager that Tuesday morning the hijacked planes had toppled the two towers, forever spiriting away his father's strange brother. They'd only ever found a single earlobe of dear dead old Uncle Joe. So Sebastian's hands trembled with anticipation as the odor of that terrible dust filled the kitchen as the package came unbundled. What is it, Daddy? said Bree, vaulting onto her kitchen stool to get a better look. It's some things Uncle Joe left us all those years ago. Who's Uncle Joe? the girl asked. He did not answer. The knife plunged through the packaging, the dust smell bloomed. He tore the bubble wrap to reveal the objects. Three of them. The first, a Snickers bar, surprisingly unmelted, with a grade wrapper. The second, a coffee mug. Sebastian wiped at the embossed message to reveal the words, World's Greatest Uncle. And the third, a pair of binoculars. Sebastian turned them over in his hands. They were light, but they felt solid and even slightly warm. Strange. Bree grabbed them out of his hands, hopped off the stool, and started running toward the living room. Can't catch me, she said. But despite his bum knees, he could indeed, and he did, and they fell laughing on the couch. That Saturday passed. There was much work to do. Hours of fielding phone calls, making trades, and gossip had been lightly peppered with the occasional game of hide-and-go-seek with his bored daughter. He tucked her in at 8pm sharp. Mummy says make sure you lock the door so that I don't sleepwalk somewhere again, Bree said, turning away on her side. He kissed her forehead, and did as he was told, testing the secure doorknob on his way out. Then he cleaned up some dishes and took out the garbage, and finally went to the couch with a tinkling tumbler of Glenfiddich, and something jabbed into his ass. It was the set of binoculars, half hidden beneath a throw pillow. What a fucking waste, he said, turning them over in his hands. Of course crazy Uncle Joe couldn't leave a fucking Rolex in his desk. But he stood and walked to the side door, talking to himself. It was an old habit that came upon him when he was drinking. He was, after all, his own best company. Crazy Uncle Joe. Incredible to think somebody considered him the world's greatest uncle. Not me, that's for sure. One of the cousins must have given that cut to the bastard. World's greatest creep would have been more appropriate. Joe Bates was known to be... something. While he was one of the most valued employees at the Cantor Fitzgerald firm at the moment American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the 92nd floor of One World Trade, at the moment of aeronautical impact, he was also the prime person of interest in a murder investigation. Joe Bates's boyfriend, Hiram Jinx, had gone missing in 2000, and he was never heard from again. Uncle Joe was questioned repeatedly in the suspicious death, but nothing was ever proven. The family was interviewed regularly. They even talked to Sebastian once. Dear Uncle Joe never got along with the rest of the family. He came to the occasional gathering, but he was always aloof and sarcastic. He was witty and quick with a laugh at the expense of others. The cousins all talked about how Uncle Joe dabbled in the occult. Someone 
once used the word warlock, which became an inside joke for certain members of the family. Uncle Joe, the warlock, the man-witch. Sebastian never believed any of that, but he had seen how his father's brother had kicked dogs and snorted lines in the family bathrooms, and he never put anything past him. And now he had the bastard's final worldly possessions. At long last. Right outside the door, Sebastian tucked the binoculars under his arm, then lit a joint. The first long toke was beautiful and warm. He then placed the joint between his tightened lips and raised the binoculars. The house was lower than the road, being nestled in the nook of the cliff so he aimed his optics up at the lamppost at the curtain of the driveway nearest the road. Totally blurry. He used his right index finger, rocking the wheel back and forth to focus. Just as some of the white Halloween ghosts were coming into crisp detail, his left index finger brushed against another knob on the underside of the optics. He lowered the binoculars, turned them over. It was indeed a strange little dial. It was put at zero, the four letters etched in the metal, seemingly by hand. With his thumb, Sebastian rolled the dial counterclockwise, clicking like a ratchet, all the way to the hilt. It was now on a negative number, negative 250. He shrugged, then raised the binoculars. Darkness, nothing more. He saw nothing in almost utter black, except for the silhouettes of inky trees against the moonlit sky. He lowered the binoculars, saw the glare of the lamppost with his naked eyes, then looked again. Again, nothing but darkness. He flipped over the binoculars and rolled the dial to negative ten. And again, he looked. This time, there was the streetlight and the familiar outlines of the houses far off through the trees, and this time, there were headlights. They were coming fast. BMW halogen lights, just like his, he thought vaguely, through his creeping high. And as he looked on in disbelief, he saw the two pinpoints of light fishtail wildly over the sixth bump toward the curb, and then slam silently into the guardrail. Sebastian threw the joint across the driveway and sprinted towards the scene of the crash. He glanced once through the binoculars, saw the rising smoke, the flickering blinkers, and kept running. It was only when he was at the curve a hundred yards down the road that he realized he was in utter darkness. No car, no people, and no crash. He wiped at his eyes, and then he turned and walked back to the house. But a thought struck him. He turned back around. He raised the binoculars. Through the optics, the crashed car was there, smoking, blinkers going madly. He lowered them, and there was nothing there. Only darkness. He raised them again, kept them to his face, and walked toward the crash scene before him. It was his car. He knew it immediately. The old blue BMW he had totaled ten years earlier, when he lit his cigarette too early before the seventh bump. The front end was like a mashed accordion, bending the guardrail around it. He kept the binoculars raised as he approached, looking at the leaking gas line, the swaying chassis, everything in strange silence. 
but just before he approached the driver's side window, he lowered the binoculars and turned away. He didn't want to see that. Any of it. His reconstructed knees ached, the metal parts nearly buckling at the very thought of it. He backed away from the darkened guardrail, still bent from that night, that crash, and half trotted to the house with a strange jolt running up and down his spine. The Halloween decoration ghosts and the election campaign signs swayed in the breeze. It was only when he was inside the house that he realized the binoculars were still in his hand, warm, seeming to hum with electricity. The first thing he did was inspect the marijuana stash. It seemed to smell fine and it didn't look like it had been dosed with angel dust or mescaline or anything. He called his dealer some college kid a mile down the road, and the kid was half-stoned and totally terrified when Sebastian started screaming accusations he had spiked the last ounce. Sebastian hung up, safely convinced the knucklehead hadn't done anything to the stash. Sebastian poured a tumbler of Glenfiddich and stared at the strange optics on the mahogany bar. By the last quaff, he had an idea. He checked the dial on the bottom of the binoculars. It was still at minus ten. Quickly checking the math again in his head, he realized his accident at the Johnston Drive curve had indeed happened ten years earlier. It was the accident which had destroyed his legs and touched off the final decline of his marriage which had finally imploded in that very house eight years earlier. Another thought struck him. He clicked the dial to negative eight, and then he raised the binoculars to his eyes, gazing right toward the fireplace. A tumbler sailed straight past his head at that moment, and he hit the floor. He kept the binoculars fixed to his face, however, and he saw Janae. She was much younger, but her face was gnarled with anger. She was facing him directly. He raised himself and walked toward the loveseat foyer so he was out of her field of view. And at that moment, he saw she was screaming at a man. He angled around to see the face. It was himself, a much younger version of himself. And though his vision was silent as much as the car accident had been, he could remember all the words without having to lip read. They had been imprinted on his heart from their utterance. You have taken the best years of my life, but I have to tell you, you have destroyed yourself. What you have done can never be undone, she said, spit and tears flying from her face like venom. You're so goddamn short-sighted. You'll never see how badly you have destroyed everything beautiful around you. I regret ever loving you. Her voice played in his head, synced perfectly with her lips. But most painfully, he saw his derisive, drunken sneer, and he knew finally that the devastation within his soul was not wrought in a moment. It was a body of work, years in the building, and years more of the destruction spreading inexorably through him like an infection. Either years of trauma not to mention the booze and drugs had damaged his brain, 
and this was all a delusion. Or the binoculars offered a way of seeing into the past. He tossed the optics away and they landed on the love seat. He drained the scotch, then he stumbled to the bed and passed out without another thought. His drunken dreams involved Uncle Joe rambling around on a coke bender like a cartoon on Fast Forward, hurriedly explaining something that seemed to have no semblance of sanity. But just as Sebastian felt that he was starting to make sense of it all, the bright sunlight pierced his eyelids, and he was awake. Sunday. Sebastian had only seen his uncle on the odd Christmas Eve growing up, maybe a dozen times all told. And being that his father, Uncle Joe's brother, was dead these last five years, Sebastian didn't hold out hope of finding too much more about his uncle or the few sad last items making up his estate. But when he called his mother, he got an earful. Joseph Bates was an evil man, she said. More than once she had heard tell of his strange obsession with the cult and all that devil music, she said. No one had a problem that he was a homosexual, she hastened to add. There was nothing wrong with that. It just happens. It's natural. But there was the fact that his life partner had disappeared in such circumstances. A murderer is a murderer, she said. The police had interviewed everyone in the family at least three times apiece in the months after that poor man who'd linked up with Joe went missing, she added. But I thought that guy just left for another country. I think that's what Uncle Joe said the last time I saw him. His mother just laughed. Joseph Bates, even at the time of his death, was still being investigated for the suspected murder of Hiram Jinx, a boyfriend who went missing right after their one-year anniversary. Rumor around the Brooklyn neighborhood held that Joe Bates took Jinx to his storage unit somewhere upstate, killed him, and dismembered him carefully, scattering the pieces around various locations so that the remains would never be found. Listening to his mother say all this clinically, like the narrator of a, a true crime TV show, was disorienting. He had a headache, and he didn't even have a hangover anymore. Mum, you say all this, but do you have any proof? I don't, but I bet you do. In that safe deposit box he left you in the will. Safe deposit box? Minutes later, he was digging through the pile of boxes in the basement, which had slowly started to subsume the western wall of the space. He glanced in each container and then tossed it aside, making a bigger mess than ever. Finally, in an hour or two, he came upon the safe deposit box. Grey metal with sharp corners. The key was still in the lock. Sebastian never remembered even opening it. Turning the key, he swung it open. Books and papers, parchments really, appeared ready to crumble at the touch. There were some strange blackened weeds bundled into a small bunch. Something rattled at the bottom. He reached in. It was a series of white knickknacks. It took a few long moments before he realized 
They were human phalanges. Bree clamored to get at the treasure her dad had unearthed in the basement, and he sated her with the weedy material from the box. The ten phalanges went into a drawer in the china closet. One of the three books was Uncle Joe's diary, or at least what might pass for a diary. Written in some kind of code, it, it seemed to be a strange amalgamation of lists and diatribes. Only about a tenth of it was in English, but even those parts made no sense. Sebastian puzzled over the strange code for a few minutes, then grabbed his phone. He pulled up the Enigma app and snapped pictures of five of the pages and pushed the decipher button. The phone screen froze for a few seconds and then said the artificial intelligence would have cracked it in seven hours. Damn it, he said, tossing the phone on the couch. You shouldn't say bad words, said Bree, gleefully tucking into her hair the sprig of whatever foliage the uncle had stowed in the safe deposit box. Don't worry about my bad words, sugar plummy. Sometimes Daddy has to express himself. He took her outside to play hopscotch on the steep driveway, but after a few minutes he found himself looking at the New York City skyline and some of the gaps he remembered from when he was a kid. And then he had an idea to truly test his insane theory of his uncle's optics. He rushed in and grabbed the binoculars, and then went to the top of the driveway, the spot that looked out between some poplar trees out at Lower Manhattan. He brushed past the spooky white ghosts hung from the trees by local kids and kicked aside the hysterical campaign signs someone had pinned to his property. Twisting the dial to 19, he slowly raised the binoculars to his face. It was all there. Despite the dusk skyline around him, through the lenses, he saw a bright crystalline sky of a Tuesday morning in late summer, 2001. He saw a plane come in smooth and fast and slam right into one of the towers, the familiar firebell of the nightmares playing out all over again. His lungs froze, even though he had seen the video replay, slow-mo and sped up and rewound and replayed as, as much as any American. He waited for the second plane. It would just be about 16 minutes more. He waited. But on minute eight, he heard a scream from behind. It was Bree. She'd fallen on her face and her mouth was bloody. He saw it and still he turned back to the binoculars, to the vantage point he could not look away from. He was waiting for the plane. He had to see the plane. So he kept watching and even walked a bit forward to correct his ankle. Daddy! screamed Breen. Daddy! But still, he kept waiting, wandering, watching for that second fireball. All Bree's teeth were intact, and he went through the motions of wiping off the blood and cleaning out the scrapes all over her chin and cheeks, but his mind was replaying the new view he had of the two World Trade Center towers being destroyed 19 years earlier. It had happened all over again. There were so many things to see. He knew he could use the binoculars to get a new vantage point on virtually anything from the past. 
he could not wait to try them again. He could travel anywhere in the world, see any battle, any speech and assassination of the past. First up, he would travel down the Garden State Parkway to Manchester, New Jersey, click the binoculars down to negative 83, and then watch the Hindenburg erupt into a silent fireball in the New Jersey sky. Anything was possible. Bree would not stop crying. He put her down for an early nap despite her protests, giving her an extra dollop of the liquid Tylenol to keep her out. Maybe it would even work for the sleepwalking, he figured. The drinks flowed too quickly that night. On his way out, he stumbled at the threshold of the side door and lurched against the frame, knocking the optics on the wood. With a moment of panic, he turned them over in his frantic hands. Everything was fine. The lenses were not cracked, the eyepiece was fine, and both barrels were also undamaged. But then he noticed the wheel. It had been turned totally around. What had been the wheel, rotated counterclockwise, had now been turned many clicks in the other direction. Instead of negative 19, it now said plus 56. There were positive numbers too. His heart hammered. If negative numbers went back into the past, positive numbers would. And without another breath, he rushed down to the overlook where he raised his optics at the Manhattan skyline. The skyline was enormous, twice as clumped together with buildings at least 20 stories taller on average. Helicopters or some other flying contraptions whizzed in between them. Glowing neon lights seemed to direct the flow of all the streaming traffic. It was an incredible vision of the future, like something out of a strange science fiction movie. Sebastian lowered the binoculars, with a greedy look crossing his face, he clicked the wheel up to plus 100 and took another look. But there was nothing. The skyline was flat, occasionally spiked with the husk of a destroyed building. New York City had been laid waste utterly. Fires burned intermittently amid the ruins Smoke whisked across the rubble on breakneck winds. Sebastian's blood ran to ice, and he nearly dropped the binoculars, but he caught them in time and held them far away from his body. He tripped a bit on the broken bright election campaign signs as he returned back to the house and an extra tall tumbler of Glenfiddich. His hands shook seeing that, Possibly in his daughter's lifetime, there would be an end to it all. He had seen to the future, and it was a hellscape. He downed the drink in another gulp, but even as the warmth of the liquor stung his throat, he ran his fingers over the binoculars, and that's when he noticed the feel of the eyepiece. Suddenly, it felt like smooth but rough, like bone. With a recoil, he realized they were also shaped like the brown ocular sections of a skull. He ran to the bathroom to vomit. 
Minutes later, he had calmed himself. He had indeed seen the future, and even a mere glimpse of what's to come could very well give him the edge in the here and now, he realized. He took a deep breath. He gingerly picked up the optics, rolled the dial back to plus five, turned on the TV, raised the eyepiece to his face, and began to watch. Within two hours, he had made a series of electronic trades that would take effect when the markets opened first thing on Monday, investing tiny amounts, which would be a fortune in just a few short years. He brimmed with the satisfaction of a man who had prepared for everything, who had the battle plans of his enemy in his jacket pocket. The dusk was falling now, and he went to the overlook. He lit a cigarette and carefully stepped down the stone stairs to the bench. Time enough to see the nearest future of all, he figured. He rolled the dial counter clockwise. He raised the optics to his face and scanned the horizon. Everything looked pretty much the same, no great changes to the great city in the next year. But instead of stopping at Staten Island, far off to his right, he kept turning on his heel until he was looking through the lenses up the staircase. What he saw froze him in his tracks. A pale figure that seemed to glow in the moonlight was descending the stairs. Sebastian nearly screamed before he realized it was only Brie. But she was tottering on the stairs uncertainly, like a sleepwalker. His heart stopped as he saw her foot slip and she took a tumble over the side, plummeting out of sight. He dashed up the stairs, limping as fast as he could, dropping the binoculars that landed on some rocks with a crack and a crumble. He reached the spot where the phantom had been and he saw nothing. Only the treetops gently swaying far, far below. It's just the future, it's just the future, it's just the future, he said. I can just make sure this doesn't happen. He stumbled down two of the steps and picked up the binoculars. He raised them to his face, but he could see nothing. They were broken. He checked the dial, but it didn't say plus one at all. It said zero. You've been listening to the Night's End Podcast Halloween Special 2021, which is a production of Dissonance Media. Vantage was written by Seth Augenstein. Seth is an award-winning writer of fiction and non-fiction. His debut novel, Project 137, emerged in 2019 from Pandamoon Publishing and was what Kirkus Reviews called an involving, tense and visceral near-future thriller. His short stories have appeared in more than a dozen magazines and fiction podcasts. For more from Seth, head to 
www.sethorgenstein.com or connect with him on Instagram at seth.orgenstein or catch him on Twitter at Seth Augenstein. Narration was performed by Xander from the Xander and Stone podcast, a science and supernatural podcast where they talk about all things weird. Just search Xander and Stone wherever you get your podcasts or head over to www.xspodcast.com or follow his personal Instagram account at XanderSwigOfficial. Delivery Man was performed by James Barnett. This episode was produced and edited by James Barnett. The Night's End Halloween theme was composed by Duncan Muggleton. For more from Duncan, connect with him on Twitter at Duncan Muggleton. To support The Night's End, I would very much appreciate if you could leave a review and a five-star rating on your podcasting app. We have merch available at www.nightsendpodcast.com. Or if you're looking for more episodes, please check out Seasons 1 and 2, which is all now available. We also have 10 exclusive episodes available through our Patreon page or through our Apple Podcast subscription, Dissidents Extra. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another tale tomorrow. And as always, stay horrific, everyone. <laughs>